welcome. My name is Mac Owens. I'm the Dean of Academics here at the Institute of World Politics. So welcome to our panel uh, at the commemorates the 100th anniversary of U.S. entry into World War One. It's raining, and I, I know one of the problems around here is people in D.C. don't go out and rain. I guess they're so sweet they're afraid they would, they would melt or something like that. It's be so sweet. I have that problem. So. But, uh, <laughs> You're not sweet, uh, man. It's good to world politics. Uh, just a little a few words about that, then I'm going to introduce uh, Mark Moyer, uh, with whom uh, and uh, of the Center for um, uh, Military and Diplomatic uh, History. Uh, with whom we're, we are co-sponsoring this, uh, this event. Uh, IWP, if, for those of you who don't know about it, is an independent graduate school of statesmanship and international relations. We have three full, ma uh, three full master's degrees, an executive and a professional master, and several, uh, a number of um, certificates. Uh, we do uh, lots of events here, and uh, we're very proud to do <clears throat> more and more in conjunction with Mark Moyer's organization. And uh, with that, I will introduce him and have him introduce him, the, the, the head of the panel, and then he'll introduce the panelists. So thank you very much. Unfortunately, I have to catch an airplane, and I'll be out of here. So I won't know. Worry. Great. Thanks, Mac. Uh, thanks to you and your staff. <coughs> uh, and also to Lindsay Markle from our organization for helping set this up. We were fortunate to get on the calendar for this month ago when people were starting to talk about the centennial, and today is probably the most single momentous day for the United States in that today is the day the declaration of war was uh, ratified, and so um, we're delighted that we, we can be here, and we were able to get three of the very top historians of, uh, of World War I. We, at our center, try to use history as a means of understanding the present, and uh, it's harder the further you'll go back, and 100 years seems uh, like a long time to Americans. Um, uh, but, but I think there's certainly some important lessons that we can learn, and we'll hear, hear about that from our speakers, as well as talking about history in its own right. Uh, we, uh, as Mac mentioned, we, we uh, don't have the greatest of weather today. We appreciate those of you who did make the track. I'm, I'm a longtime Cleveland Browns fan who you know, has always you know, believe that you should not be just a fair weather fan. So I, I'm, I'm very uh, appreciative for, for all of those here who, who braved the, the elements to to be here with us. And so uh, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Jack Tierney, who is on the faculty here at the Institute, um, and he is going to introduce our speakers. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, Mark, I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, I have never met any of the panelists today, but going over their resumes uh, uh, a couple weeks ago when I first ran across the resumes, I said to myself, what am I doing here with these people? I mean, this is probably the top three uh, uh, individual collections of uh, individuals on the First World War that you could, you could uh, collect together in, in the United States. And uh, though I've not met them, uh, the amount of work that they've done talking to them and reading their resume is absolutely astounding. Now these, these are three of the top, the best that, that we could uh, uh, assemble. Now, I've never written a book on First World War, but I did teach 
a history course on the 20th century uh, in this school since 1998, since I first arrived. I taught it for 48 consecutive semesters. And at the end of every semester, the students give you a, uh, have a chance to evaluate the professor. And uh, at the end of every one of my 48 semesters, without fail, most of the class says, he spends too much time on World War I. We want to go into contemporary issues. I said, well, I don't know anything about contemporary issues. I just know World War I. Well, I know a little more. You know, uh, I fought the Cold War, by the way. Uh, and I, they said, well, we want contemporary issues. And I came back to the next class and I said, World War I is contemporary. Sports fans, okay? It's all around you, as one of the speakers will address that issue today. We are feeling the effects of the end of the First World War uh, in every aspect of the globe, including the Middle East and the Balkans in the 90s, in America as a world power and so forth. World War I will not, in my lifetime, a little older than probably most of you, ever end in terms of its impact, far surpassing the impact of the Second World War. It caused the Second World War. It was the second, second part of it. Uh, I just want to emphasize how important the First World War is just at, at the outset as an introduction and to give a little bit of a personal story, an anecdote to you as to how personal it is to me. I know one student, uh, they don't put their names on the evaluation, said it was so great to have World War I uh, addressed to us by a, an eyewitness. <laughs> I'd like to have if, if they put their names, it would not have been an A student. <laughs> I'm old, but not quite. About 2000, in, in 2008, uh, Jason Johnsrud, who's our administrator, and uh, some of our students had access to the daughter of the sole survivor of the American Expeditionary Force in World War I. He lived in Charlestown, West Virginia. And on a Saturday morning, we all traveled in caravans up to the house of Frank Buckles in 2008. Mr. Buckles was 108. He entered too young. He was born in 1900. He was 17. He was very lively, very active, very articulate. And he lived in this huge farm, which was a prize farm in West Virginia farming, you know, culture. I think it had to do with the way he and his family uh, cultivated uh, the farm. He was very active, very intellectual, and he was a driver. He did not see the trenches. He drove General Pershing, and he knew John Pershing fairly well, and he drove ambulances. He was the last survivor and soldier of four million that were mobilized. Two million went to France. He died in 2011 in Arlington Cemetery ceremony attended by President Obama and the entire administration. To me, World War I is a little personal. Finally, uh, I want to stress the importance of the day, April 6, 1917. This is the 100th anniversary. I gave a talk here on December 7th last, signifying the critical importance of World War Two and the Pearl Harbor attack 
and concluded that the Pearl Harbor attack was certainly one of the, was, was probably uh, the most uh, memorialized and most critical attack or entry of, in the history of the United States foreign policy. Maybe the top. And in the entire two hours that I talked, not a single person said anything about April 6, 1917. The topic was Pearl Harbor. But upon reflection, was Pearl Harbor uh, more important than April 6? It was certainly more explosive. It lived in infamy. It was more damaging than a speech to Congress, which happened in April 6. But what was the lasting significance of the two events? Upon reflection, I think it's possible to submit the thesis that this day was more infamous than Pearl Harbor. Even though we went into retreat for, uh, have a nice weekend, Mac, for uh, two, two decades, the, the involvement with Germany twice and with world politics began on, on April 6th, and it continued to the Second World War. It's a very simplistic answer to the question, what caused the first, excuse me, what caused the Second World War? The answer is the First World War. That's a very simplistic answer. But it has a grain of truth. So I think in terms of our strategic uh, chronology and our strategic involvement, I think this day could well be advanced as the most important day in the history of American foreign relations. No. Some people from the audience said, well, Fort Sumter was more important. Yes, recognized. You know, the, the integration of the nation was more important than defeating the Japanese in the Western Pacific. Yeah. But in terms of its overall impact upon the U.S. foreign policy and upon the world, World War I and the U.S. entry on April 6 could be considered number one. I, I'm thinking that now. Okay? And in terms of the impact, I know one of the speakers will address this, but just, and I teach the class this, what is the most important single moment in the history of the 20th century? If you could pinpoint a second, it would be, in my humble opinion, and it is humble, believe me, it would be June 28th, 1914, when the Archduke was assassinated. That began, 19, uh, June 28th, 1914, that began the movement towards the origins of the war on August 1st, and then eventually the American involvement. Having said that, let me go to introduce true experts on the subject. Uh, who can address my thesis or not? I imagine that they might agree with it. I don't know. It's a hypothesis. Our first speaker is Michael Nieberg. As I said, I've never met any of the panelists, but I am very, very uh, impressed with their credentials. Is the inaugural chair of war studies in the Department of National Security and Strategy in the U.S. Army War College. His published work specializes on both world wars, notably the American and French experiences in each. His most recent book on the First World War is Dance of the Furies. Europe and the Outbreak of World War I, Harvard University, 2011. It has been called by the Wall Street Journal one of the five best books ever written on the first outbreak of the First World War. 
I think it may be one of the two or three. Wall Street Journal are very conservative. <laughs> In October 2012, Basic Books published His Blood of Free Men, A History of the Liberation of Paris, 1944. Remember General de Gaulle walking under the Arc of Triumph as though he won the war. You know. And then in a couple of years ago, in 2015, he, he published Potsdam, The End of World War II and the Remaking of Europe. Oxford University Press published his Path, of war, Path to War, History of American Responses to the Great War, 1914-1917. It gives me great honor to present Professor Nieberg. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you everybody for braving the rain and coming out here. Um, I would absolutely agree with Professor Tierney that the First World War is the single most important event for European history, for world history, and for US history, which makes it all the more curious that we really don't know very much about it. And I don't know what all of you learned about the First World War. I learned nothing in high school, in college, or in graduate school of any use whatsoever. Um, as I was getting to be uh, a professor and I was being asked to teach these subjects, I was figuring that really what we had done as a community of historians is take some half-baked assumptions from the 1920s, recycle them through a prism of the 1930s, refracted through World War II, looked at through another prism of the 1960s, and we just kept teaching that again and again and again and again. And to the best of my knowledge, in starting the, the, the work on the Path to War book that Professor Tierney was kind enough to mention, nobody had gone back to original, original sources. Nobody had gone back and looked at primary material from this period since David Kennedy produced the book over here in 1980, and only one chapter of that book was dedicated to how the U.S. got into this war. So the idea I had for the book was to go back to the basics, go back to what the American people themselves were saying, get away to the maximum extent that I could from Woodrow Wilson and his inner circle, a group that has been studied, and see what the picture might look like if I got away from the White House, got away from Washington, to a certain extent got away from New York City, which are the two places everybody studies, and looked at the rest of the United States and see what might appear, what might look different. And that's what this book did. Um, and so what I'd like to do in the 20 minutes or 15 minutes or so that I have here is introduce a few of the ideas from that book and hopefully show you that this method of looking at the outbreak of the First World War is not only more powerful than looking through Woodrow Wilson's eyes, but also helps to explain a little bit of where we are today uh, a little bit more clearly. My, my fear with the First World War is the way that we typically teach it, and this has been true of my two daughters when they've been learning this in junior high school and high school, the First World War is treated as a kind of bracketed event that is unique and distinct and kind of you put it in a little box and then you don't open the box again. When, of course, what we have to do with an historical event like this one is understand where it came from, understand the event in its own time, and then understand the importance of the event in the years that follow. So that's what I would like to do. Um, I never like to um, contradict my host, but Mark, I'm a Steelers fan, so there's going to be a couple Pittsburgh things in here. Um, the first myth that is quickly, is very easy to dispel. It's very easy to blow up. All you have to do is look at the newspapers that the American people were looking at in 1914 when the war broke out to realize that this country was not ignoring what was happening. People in the United States knew from the minute this war began, not only that it was the single biggest event they were likely ever to live through, but that this event was going to impact them and impact them directly. Uh, for reasons I can talk about, I had to, my, my closest friend is a macroeconomist with the State Department. He had to explain this to me because I didn't understand it. But the First World War led to the closing of the New York, Philadelphia, and Chicago stock markets 
from late July 1914 until about October, November of 1914. So even though the United States is on this side of the Atlantic, and that's true, and even though the German army isn't running through the United States, that's not to say that it's not affecting the US. And I can show you, uh, I will show you a little bit more of this. From the very beginning, American journalists are going over to Europe, and they are reporting on what they're seeing. So one thing I think we need to throw out the window immediately is this sense that the United States is either not paying attention or that we're duped by the news coming from Great Britain. Because what you see are American reporters like Richard Harding Davis, a close friend of Theodore Roosevelt's, a very well-known journalist in his day, reporting from Europe and saying, look, don't believe what the British are saying. We know they're trying to suck us in. Believe what we Americans have seen with our own eyes. It's bad enough. What we've seen with our own eyes is sufficient to lay the claim of committing atrocities on civilians upon the Germans. You don't have to believe what the British reports are saying. In fact, you should not. So I want to throw that one out there just to begin. And I want to introduce another Pittsburgher. Sorry, Mark. This is Mary Roberts Reinhardt, who was in her day a mystery writer. Um, she later went by the nickname the American Agatha Christie. She was offered the opportunity by the Saturday Evening Post to be the first woman ever to go into the trenches of the Western Front on both sides. She was also offered the opportunity to meet with the British, French, German, and Austrian leaders, which she did. She met with the King and Queen of England. She met with the Kaiser. She met with the President of France. She went into the trenches. A really remarkable trip that she took at the end of 1914. She came home just before the Lusitania uh, sinking. And she went away. Her, the last piece she wrote for the Saturday Evening Post before she left said, look, I'm an American, plague on both their houses. How could civilization have done this? All the Europeans are equally guilty. She came back to the United States, to Pittsburgh and New York City, writing, look, I've seen this. The British and French are fighting for goals that may be different from what we want as Americans, but they're on the side of the right. They're fighting for democracy. The Germans are trying to destroy democracy. They're trying to instill a dictatorial system across Europe. The United States can't let that happen. Now, she's quite clear. That doesn't mean the United States should declare war. In her mind, it doesn't even yet mean that the United States should break diplomatic relations. But, she argued, the United States has to stand by Britain and France whatever way the United States can do it. Just like, of course, is going to happen 1939 to 1941 with Lend-Lease, all the other things that are going to happen. So she becomes a very strong advocate, as does Richard Harding Davis, as do almost all of these um, uh, American reporters that go overseas. And as the war goes on, of course, the United States and the connections the United States has to Europe become deeper. So here's a, a, a cartoon that I, just one of those things you come across when you're doing research to just hit you. This is October 1915. This is in reference to the Armenian Genocide. The cartoon here doesn't blame the Ottoman Empire. It blames the Germans. This is the Kaiser wearing a fez and holding a dripping scimitar uh, with the caption, Alamituns. Right? God is with us, right? <laughs> right? So the, the American people make the case that, hey, the Ottomans never would have done this had Germany not been behind them, had Germany not been greenlighting this kind of behavior. Uh, in a way that, you know, just reading the New York Times this morning about the, the same issue cropping up. There is a terrible thing going on, the killing of civilians going on, in this case, in the same part of the world. What is the United States' obligation to stop it? The same kinds of debates are happening. And again, to me as an historian, the notion that the American people would debate and argue politics in other eras of history, but didn't do it in this era, just struck me as nonsensical. Right? Just struck me as completely nonsensical. Uh, the Lusitania sinking, which of course happens right about this time. It happens, as I said, just after Mary, Rob Mary Roberts Reinhardt returned to the United States. Uh, did not, did not, did not lead the United States to want to declare war on Germany. 
What it did do, and I'm going to talk about this this afternoon at AUSA, what it did do was force the American people now to ask the question, what now do we do about this? We are now directly in the line of fire. What should we do? And again, it should come as no surprise to anybody that the American people did not agree on the answer to that question. Uh, let me move on. Okay, economics as well are an enormous factor in all of this. This is a cartoon from April 1915. I found this in the Newberry Library in Chicago. Another one of those things you see that just opens your eyes and says, wow, this is, this is great stuff. This is John McCutcheon, who later went on to win the first Pulitzer Prize for editorial cartooning. This is his cartoon, Coming Our Way, in April 1915. And if you can see it from the back, I hope that you can. The docks of New York City are quite literally magnets, pulling the hard currency of Europe from the European side of the Atlantic Ocean over to the American side. And you can see Uncle Sam with his arms wide open here. And you can see the London, Paris, and British bankers on the right side of the cartoon exasperated that they're losing all of their money. Now, this is a complicated, complicated picture. It is not true, I think. There's no evidence to sustain the charge that the United States got involved in the First World War because the government needed to ensure the profits of private investors. There's no evidence to sustain that charge. However, it's quite clear that the First World War is a dramatic shift in the American economy for all kinds of reasons that I'll talk about here in just a second. Very early on, this is April 1915, this is pre-Lusitania, Americans are writing editorials in newspapers saying, look, if we play our cards right, we can gain from this war. We can reorient the global economy from London to New York City. This is an opportunity for the United States to take the first place that has always been due to her. There are other Americans, like Mary Roberts Reinhardt, who are arguing, what kind of a country are we if all we do is profit from the death of others? What does that say about us? If all we're doing is providing the weapons, if all we're doing is providing the high interest loans, what does that say about us? What does that say about all these values that we proclaim? So again, this, this debate between fighting for values and fighting for interest, which is in today's New York Times, is something that, of course, they're talking about 100 years ago, and it ought to come at no surprise. Here's Mary Roberts Reinhardt describing Pittsburgh as fattening on catastrophe. On the one hand, she's happy that Westinghouse, U.S. Steel, all of these Pittsburgh corporations are employing people, that the city is booming, the, the, the United States economy was in recession when the First World War broke out. It quickly gets out of that recession, as you can see from, from these numbers right here. On the other hand, she says, what is it that we're doing? What is our role in all of this? And this economy is happening not only because the United States can sell to the Europeans absolutely anything and everything that the Europeans want. It is also the case that products that the American people used to buy from Europe, they now buy at home. So I found a report in Tennessee. American Bible salesmen were thrilled by the outbreak of the war because pre-World War I, Americans bought their Bibles from Europe. Once the war breaks out, the printers who had been printing those Bibles are now printing things for the armies. It opens up a space for American Bible salesmen. The same thing, that 1915 is the, the highest year in sales by far of Bibles made in the United States. The same thing is true of pencils. The same thing is true of eyeglasses. Americans used to buy their eyeglasses from Germany, almost always. Right? These things are now being made, bought, purchased, everything inside the United States. Now, it's also true that the, the great industrialists of America, the people, the DuPonts, the Guggenheims, are of course making unbelievable fortunes. Daniel Guggenheim was in Europe in 1914. He showed up in London. Nobody would cash his checks because the war had broken out. He showed up in London with 17 cents in his pocket, desperate for money, with an enormous smile on his face because he knew how much the Guggenheim family was going to profit off of the war. 
It is also true, however, that anybody that could manufacture almost anything could sell it, distribute it, send it overseas, and make money off of it. Iowa corn farmers, you name it, are making money off of the war. Right? Per capita U.S. income from 1914 to 1917 goes up nearly 45%. Okay? Everybody is making money. Um, but, as I noted, it raises that moral question. As the headline of one newspaper wrote, have we a right to our present prosperity? Now, what happens in the First World War is that America's ability to make money is dependent on the country most Americans want to see win. So, what I mean by that is, as Mary Roberts Reinhardt noted, Americans sympathize with Great Britain and France. American trade overseas depends not only on the Royal Navy, it depends on British credit markets, it depends on British insurance markets, and it depends on British shipping. Almost all American overseas trade pre-World War I goes over on British ships, and almost all of it is insured by British companies. That didn't change from 1914 to 1917. What that meant was there was no contradiction between America's profits and which side of the war they wanted to see America benefit from. Most American opposition to British trade happens in those moments when the British are trying to tighten the screws a little bit on the United States, especially in regards to one commodity, which is a controversial one, and that's cotton. Cotton is used for the packing of artillery shells, therefore the British Army and Navy wanted it declared contraband. American senators in the U.S. South objected to that characterization, as you might guess, and the British go back and forth from 1914 to 1917, letting cotton go through and trying to, to declare it as contraband. Um, now, some Americans wanted to do more than just profit off of the war. And some of you know many of these very famous names and many of the famous people uh, that got involved. Herbert Hoover is one, although he remained quite neutral. Uh, Edith Wharton, the American writer, was in France and started a charity for, for French uh, refugees. Uh, J.P. Morgan's daughter, Anne Morgan, remarkably talented woman, organized a charity. That The charity she organized still functions in France in a beautiful chateau in eastern France. Um, which is quite nice to go to. Uh, there's a statue to Anne Morgan in Les Invalides in Paris. If you ever get the chance to go there to that wonderful French military museum, there's a memorial to her uh, in there. Um, there were, of course, Americans from 48 of the of 46 of the 48 states. Americans from 46 of the 48 states went to France as doctors or nurses. Okay, to the Allied side, right? Uh, there's a Canadian colleague of mine um, who has estimated he thinks 80,000 Americans crossed the border into Canada and joined the British Army. 80,000, right? In other words, Americans are putting their lives on the line. There is nothing equivalent to this going to Germany and Austria-Hungary. There are some German citizens who went back to do their, their, their civic duty as they saw it, right? But there are no Americans of German descent that I can find that are doing it. I found one doctor who went to Austria-Hungary as a doctor, right? And wrote in a letter that's in the, the World War I Museum in Kansas City, I'm not doing this in sympathy with the Central Powers cause. I'm doing this out of dire need. They need doctors. These folks went one step further still. These are the members of what used to be called the Escadrille, what was first called the Escadrille American, the American Squadron. The Germans objected and said that you can't use that name. Wilson said, okay. Theodore Roosevelt came up with the idea to call it the Escadrille Lafayette, right? So these are members of the Lafayette Escadrille, almost all of them extremely wealthy. They're founded by a Pittsburgh guy, Billy Thaw, Steeler fan too, I'm sure. Um, Billy Thaw was the first person in New York City to own his own airplane. Flew that plane underneath the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, freaking out an awful lot of people. And he formed this squadron of American flyers for France. Right? And I can talk much more about them. To me, they're absolutely fascinating. They serve in 1916. 
as part of the French Air Force, but independent of them, meaning that they don't really have to follow the rules and discipline of the French Army. And because of their wealth, and because of the money given to them by people like Theodore Roosevelt and Cornelius Vanderbilt, they're able to live this unbelievably lavish lifestyle. VIPs flock to their camps because they have you know, white china and they have beautiful dinners and all of this. They have two mascots, you can see them here, whiskey and soda, two lion cubs. Um, these are interesting guys. They make for fascinating PR, of course, on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. And they symbolize this link between the two countries, as does, of course, Alan Seeger, who dies in the service of the Allied armies. Uh, and I could go on and on and on and on. This is the memorial the French built in the Parc de Garche in western Paris that they just cleaned up uh, to the Lafayette Escadrille. It wasn't in great shape for a little while. Uh, now it is. Um, as I mentioned, nurses and doctors from 46 states went over. Uh, Columbia University raised $2,000 in one day at a football game for service for Belgium and France. So there are, these, there are these connections that show the United States' close emotional, moral, economic links to the Allied powers. So that by the middle of 1916, the French are referring to the United States as our great neutral ally. And the Germans, of course, are looking at the United States as a belligerent in everything but name, which is why the German, uh, Germans sent agents to blow up the Black Tom uh, Railway Depot in Jersey City, New Jersey, in the summer of 1916. Now, being neutral is one thing. Being pushed into war is something uh, very different. Now, what starts to happen by 1916, 1917, well, excuse me, by, by the middle of 1916, is that the American people are starting to feel the war coming closer and closer and closer to them. And the, the illustration I'd love to use for this, I'm gonna show it in Canada in a couple weeks, uh, is the, this is the front cover of Life Magazine, February 10th, 1916. And again, I'd like you to note the date. It's about 14 months before the United States gets involved in the war. This is a map that shows the United States labeled as New Prussia. It shows the west coast of the United States as Japonica. It shows Baja California as Austriana. And it shows Mexico as the province of Mexico. Right? The notion here that this map is trying to articulate is that the United States is suffering because of its own neutrality. Now, north of the border there, it reads barbarians. So I can't wait to show this in Calgary in a couple weeks. Now, for the record, I don't think this is a reference to the Canadians. What I think this is a reference to is the fear that if the Germans win the war, they may do what countries and great powers have done with North America for centuries. They may say to the British and French, we'll let you out of the war, but part of the reparations is that we get parts of your empire, including Canada, including maybe the French Caribbean possessions. This is why New Zealand had the highest percentage of men join the army without conscription. The fear was, if Germany wins, the Germans will take New Zealand as part of the, the, the spoils of war, in which case you lose everything. Germans will come in and take your land. This is also why, in 1916, the United States bought the Danish Virgin Islands and renamed them the US Virgin Islands. It was to keep them away from Germany so that Germany couldn't build a naval base in the Caribbean. Right, 1914, remember, is also when the Panama Canal gets opened. So this fear is out there, it's in the miasma. People are talking about it, they're afraid of it. And then of course, one year later, the big event that pulls the US into the war is the Zimmerman telegram, which confirms that this isn't just conspiracy theories. Right? The Zimmerman telegram confirms that something just like this is in fact going on. The Germans really do want to create a German-Mexican alliance against the United States. They really are interested in giving up parts of the United States to Mexico in order to make that happen. Right? This is why the Zimmerman telegram is the event that it is. Not because it comes out of nowhere, but because it is the confirmation of these fears that the American people have been having, as this map shows, 
for over a year. So let me start to wind down so I don't r overrun my time. This is Mary Roberts Reinhardt again, and I'd like you to note again the date, and I'm gonna read, because I know some folks in the back may not be able to, to read that. This is March 1917. She wrote this about a month earlier, right? About February 1917. In other words, this is well ahead of Woodrow Wilson coming to the Congress to ask for a declaration of war. She writes, we are virtually at war. By the time this is published, perhaps the declaration will have been made. In my view, Woodrow Wilson is three months behind the American people. By the time he goes to Congress to ask for that declaration of war, the state of New Jersey, the state of Massachusetts, and the state of New York have all mobilized for war. Two members of Wilson's cabinet are afraid that if Wilson doesn't do something soon, Congress will declare war without him, which is in fact what they're talking about doing. Okay, Wilson is way behind the American people. America, she wrote, is the last stand of the humanities on earth, the realization of a dream, and the fulfillment of an ideal. Britain and France both shared parts of that ideal, and it had a foundational role in creating it. Since 1914, they had been fighting for the ideal on which my country was founded. Under the domination of the Prussians, and this is important, this is regime change, what the Americans are arguing for. We don't want to crush the German people, we want to get rid of the Prussian government. It's regime change before the phrase. Imperial Germany now threatened those values, not only in Europe, but in America itself, for it had broken loose something terrible, something that must be killed or the world dies. Now, she was more eloquent than most Americans were, but she hit it. What the United States now has to do is go to war to protect itself. The fact that Woodrow Wilson is talking about these grander ideas and these grander remaking of the world may or may not matter to Americans. So what I think happens is that by the time we get to this moment 100 years ago, even Woodrow Wilson has to be convinced that by staying neutral, the United States makes itself less safe, not more. And the reason I think that we commemorate Veterans Day on November 11th is that on that day, when the Germans signed the armistice on November 11th, 1918, most American people, including Mary Roberts Reinhardt, think the job is done. The Imperial German government is gone. The question of what to do and the question of how to shape that peace thereafter Americans don't agree on it all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, the next speaker is John Maurer, John H. Maurer, who is the Alfred Thayer Mahan, the architect of American sea power, professor of sea power and grand strategy at the Naval War College in Newport, where our Dean Mac Owens is now on his way to. He is a graduate of Yale and holds a PhD in IR from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, T Tufts University. He's the author and editor of books examining the outbreak of the First World War, military interventions in the developing world, naval rivalry and arms control between the two world wars, including the, the uh, Washington Naval Disarmament Conference of 1921-22. I asked him because there's, the titles of his books are not listed, on the bio, could he just tell me the title of one? Yeah, yeah I said, here's one, The Outbreak of the First World War. <laughs> it's quite appropriate, I believe, for, for this morning. And he, the other titles have to do with the subject. He serves as a senior research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, where I began my academic career sometime during the Great Depression, but I'm not exactly sure when. Um, and the editorial board of Orbis, that, Mac Owens uh, edits as well, and uh, he's the associate editor of Diplomacy and Statecraft. In recognition 
for his service, Dr. Maurer uh, received the U.S. Navy's Meritorious Civilian Service Award and Superior Civilian Service Award. Dr. Maurer. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <clears throat> I want to thank uh, Mark and Mac and their teams for inviting us to be here on this important occasion, marking the 100th anniversary of the U.S. declaration of war uh, on Imperial Germany. And what I'm going to talk about complements in a very nice way what Mike talked about. Mike talked about the domestic scene, the domestic setting, the domestic environment in which American decision-making is taking place. I'm going to look at the international environment, some of the longer tides of history, to look at how the Great War came to involve the United States. This is a period that very much resonates with today. There's much, much that we can see in the way of parallels between the era of a hundred or so years ago and our own age today. What I want to do is start off by talking about rise and fall of great powers, uh, world powers. Of course, at the beginning of the 20th century, the world power was Great Britain. It was the world superpower, the dominant power on the world stage. Here you see British coin from 1806, George III, our last king, uh, on one side, and on the other you see Britannia holding the trident, also holding the olive branch of peace, even though Britain was at war at that time against Napoleonic France. In the background you see shipping. Again, Britain's wealth derives from commerce, trade, and the power of the Royal Navy to be able to keep open sea lines of communication. At this period, too, Britain is pioneering the Industrial Revolution. Britain is going to be known as the workshop of the world. And if you go to the period of 1870, and you look at Britain's place in the world as an industrial power, you see that it is the dominant industrial power in the world. By the way, 1874 was the year that Winston Churchill was born. He died in 1965. So in the span of one lifetime, one long lifetime, you see the demise of this great superpower uh, moving from being the world's only superpower to where it's a medium power on the world stage. Well, again, if you look at Britain, it's not just a power in Europe, it is also a global superpower to the north, the Great Dominion, and of course in uh, Asia. As late as 1939, the great author, journalist John Gunther could say, well, we all know that Britain is the most important power in Asia. Not Japan, not China, it's Britain. And why? Well, you can see the British Empire stretches from New Zealand through Australia, round into Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, Singapore, South Asia, modern day India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, all the way around to South Africa, arcing through the Middle East. The British Empire is in many ways an Indian Ocean littoral empire. Uh, again, the Britons like to boast that the sun never set on the British Empire one quarter of the world's landmass and one quarter of the world's population are under British administration. Well, this period, as I said, looks like today in many ways, and one way that it does is what we today call the rise of the rest. Fareed Zakaria has written about this. There are rising powers on the world stage that are challenging Britain's position on the world stage. Who are those rising powers? Well, this photograph shows the two most important. 
And what do you see here in this photograph? You see President Theodore Roosevelt and Kaiser Wilhelm. They are German army maneuvers in May of 1910. Theodore Roosevelt has left the White House a year before. He is in Europe to receive the Nobel Peace Prize for the role that he played in bringing an end to the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, the Treaty of Portsmouth, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And while in Europe, he was invited to give talks, lectures in Paris, Berlin, and the Kaiser invited him to German army maneuvers in 1910. Well, at German army maneuvers, the Kaiser's photographer, court photographer, took photographs of the Kaiser and the president, ex-president, on horseback. The Kaiser then sent these photographs to Theodore Roosevelt, and he wrote captions underneath them. And here's one of the photographs. And the caption. You can all read that, right? No. Okay, I'll make it easy for you. That's why we historians get paid the big bucks. <laughs> the Colonel of the Rough Riders lecturing the chief of the German army. And there you see the Kaiser's own hand. He's writing in English. Remember, he is the grandson of Queen Victoria. He's fluent in English. Okay. And then another photograph. Again, as you can see, Doberitz, 11th of May, 1910. And uh, uh, what's the Kaiser writing? Well, again, I'll make it easy for you. Total agreement about the general maxims and life and policy between America, spelled with a K, and Germany. Well, we know this isn't the case. There is no total agreement between these rising powers on the world stage. And indeed, within seven years, the German and the American armies are going to be fighting each other in the battlefields of the Western Front and also in the North Atlantic. Uh, again, there is no agreement between these two rising powers that are challenging each other as well as Britain's position as the dominant world power. Well, how do you measure rising powers? Well, typically we go back and look at uh, some economic data to try to measure the economic strength of countries. This comes from Paul Kennedy's great book, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers of 1987. And what you see is that in 1890, Britain is no longer the workshop of the world. There are other workshops of the world, including the United States. This shows energy consumption, which is a good measure of industrial output, of a country's industrialization. And what you see is that in 1890, the United States has emerged as an industrial power on par with Britain. That's what I want to highlight here. And the American public, our elites, are aware of it. In 1893, we have the Great Columbian Exhibition in Chicago. Again, to highlight for Americans their industrial and technological prowess. Whereas in the 1850s, Britain had the Crystal Palace. I showed you in earlier slides highlighting their industrial strength and technology. Now the Americans mimicking the British are having this World's Fair to show that the United States has emerged as a technological and industrial power on the world stage on par with Britain. And again, fast forward another generation to 1913, and what you see is that the United States is an economic superpower before the First World War has occurred. Our country in economic industrial power is stronger than Germany and Britain combined. What you also see there is that Germany in industrial strength is pulling abreast of Britain as well as a rival.
Again, before the United States is a military diplomatic superpower on the world stage, it's already an economic superpower. For the last hundred plus years, this is one of the most important, important elements of the international system is the strength of the US economy relative to other countries. It's something that's been enduring, but in recent years, of course, is being challenged on the world stage. Well, Americans at the time were well aware of it, of America's growing economic prowess. And what you see here is Brooks Adams, great-grandson um, and great-grandson of two American presidents, uh, writing an important book at the time, America's Economic Supremacy. To his friend, Henry Cabot Lodge, this is what Brooks is writing. England is sad, to me very sad. Again, the US is surpassing Britain on the world stage. And again, being an Anglophile, like you, he hopes that Britain might somehow revive itself. But his hope is faint, because the current is flowing away from Britain. England's going to grow more and more sluggish until after his day. It's no longer going to be the major player on the world stage. Again, it takes two generations and two world wars, but uh, what Brooks Adams foresaw in writing to his friend Henry Cabot Lodge did come to pass. Well, Alfred Thayer Mahan, and I hold the Alfred Thayer Mahan uh, professorship at the Naval War College. He was also writing at this time, and in 1890, the first volume of his books, The Influence of Sea Power on History, came out, and in the first volume of 1890, he wrote again that Britain's life is waning relative to other powers. So American leaders are aware of the change in the international security environment. And as Theodore Roosevelt said in 1911, that the United States is fast becoming owing to its strength and geographical position, the balancer power in the world. In other words, the role that Britain typically, traditionally has played in the 19th century, in the 20th century, the United States is going to have to play. Well, this leads also to a contested commons. Today we think about the commons as being the maritime commons, the aerospace, uh, the uh, information commons, cyber. Well, this is a period, too, of these rising powers where the commons, and in particular here, the maritime commons, is starting to be called into question. Again, another one of these parallels and resonances with today. There's a struggle for naval mastery. The First World War is part of this struggle for naval mastery. Again, Britain, at the time of the Napoleonic War, the Battle of Trafalgar, 21st October 1805, Everybody says that half the safes in Britain can be opened by 21.10.05. I've never tried that, Mike. What do you think? You <laughs> think? Try to, I'll, no, I'll, maybe I'll, we, ought, like we ought to try. The, uh, the, other, is the, battle of, the other is the Battle of Waterloo, 1806.15. Well, we ought to try that. Maybe we can see, become rich next time we're in London. Anyway, Battle of Trafalgar. Again, Britain's position in the world as the dominant world power, as a superpower, rests on its naval mastery, its command of the maritime commons in the long hundred years war against France and Spain that had preceded it. Well, by 1897, at the time of Queen Victoria's Jubilee, it was thought that Britain's position was still unassailable, that it has 360 fighting ships, trim shape, 
again equal to what? The next five navies combined. Doesn't that sound like today? The U.S. defense budget is equal to the next eight or nine. You know, everybody always trumps out that you know number and all the rest is somehow it has some meaning for us all that the U.S. must be this really uh, military power on steroids relative to everybody else. Uh, and uh, here you see also the number 360. Again, that resonates with what many would like to see the U.S. Navy being today up from 270. Is it the global superpowers need about 360 ships? I, I don't know. Uh, but again, one of those residences that in numerology here, the numbers seem to work out to be about the same. Of course, within 20 years, 1917, Britain's position on the maritime commons was not unassailable. Britain was in a desperate fight against the German submarines and was coming close to losing command of the maritime commons. Again, what seemed so comfortable and sure and unassailable in 1897 doesn't look at all like that by 1917. Again, a big reversal has taken place. Well, for the United States, what does this mean, the waning of power? Well, for Mahan, for Theodore Roosevelt, this is Alfred Thayer Mahan, every danger of a military character the United States uh, is going to face has to be met, preferably outside our own territory, over there somewhere at sea. As President George W. Bush said, we want to make our wars an away game rather than a home game. Again, the Navy, by being able to command a commons, can defend the U.S. out to sea. You don't want to have fights, Fort McHenry, where the enemy is bombarding your cities. You want to take, rather than have a strategic defense initiative, you want a strategic offense initiative. You want to take the fight away, away from the United States. Well, for Theodore Roosevelt, the lesson is clear. The American people have to have a great Navy, or else they must resign themselves to playing a lesser role on the world stage. Now, it's not just Theodore Roosevelt, though. And Theodore Roosevelt was often compared to Kaiser Wilhelm at the time. They were both ardent nationalists. They were both outspoken. They both wanted large navies. The fleet Kaiser, again, for him, he wants to build up a powerful German navy. In his case, in opposition to Britain. The German Navy is going to be poised so that when these great wars take place in the 20th century, that the German people are able to fight on that maritime commons. Again, it's a priority for him. And here you see a 100-mark note from 1910. It's a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, artwork here. And what do you see? Well, on the right, you see Germania sitting comfortably, legs crossed, at peace, resting on her shield. Sword sheathed. What do you see in the lower left? Again, you see the symbols of economic prowess, the plow, the anvil, also pharmaceuticals there. Underneath the great tree of life from German mythology, linking the heavens to the underworld, and our own mortals live. Again, German culture and civilization being represented by that. And what defends it all? The battle fleet. The battle fleet. Don't you think Admiral Richardson would love to see a, a $20 bill an aircraft carrier? <laughs> Again, it comes all together. Prosperity, well-being, national assertiveness. All of this, your, your, your traditions, your history, your culture are all linked together and defended by having a powerful 
powerful fleet. Again, what great propaganda this is. Again, today we call this naval nationalism. Robert Ross of Boston College, uh, again, that uh, China is doing this today, trying to build up its uh, navy by highlighting all of these connections, connections between prosperity, history, and future well-being. Well, the Germans build up their big battle fleet, but then Britain also built up its battle fleet to counter it. And when the war comes, these two battle fleets are stalemated against each other in the main naval theater, the North Sea. I put here, again, the riff on All Quiet in the Western Front. Well, of course, the North Sea Front was not quiet any more than the Western Front was. A great deal of fighting took place. Small ships, mining submarines uh, fighting there. It's just that the main battle fleets, on which so much had been invested before the war, both economically but also psychologically, the admirals on both sides are very risk-averse in using, fighting those capital ships in this contested zone. Um, the result is this stalemate on the North Sea front. And this stalemate works to Britain's advantage. Again, today, what we would call a strategy of offshore control, the British blockade. While Germany's fighting on the East and Western Front, the North Sea is what Barry Posen of MIT would call a contested zone, and you can impose a blockade on preventing Germany from getting foodstuffs and also raw materials as much as you can by having this blockade without infuriating too much the United States. Again, it has a major impact on the German economy and hence its ability to wage war. Before the war began, the British were aware of how powerful this offshore control blockade could be in hurting the German economy. This is Admiral Jackie Fisher, who was first Sea Lord from 1904 to 1910. And again, that God somehow, Providence, has arranged for Britain to be in this commanding geographical position to be able to hurt Germany the strategic advantage that comes from geography. Again, fancy the knockdown blow to German trade in Paris. And look what he says at the end, worth Paris. In other words, even if the Germans win on the land, Britain can still win this war because they can impose a blockade on uh, the European continent. Much as after 1940 when France is defeated, Britain still has the wherewithal to continue a war against the German-dominated continent, just as it had during the Napoleonic Wars. And again, this economic warfare would hurt Germany. Jack, whenever you want me to stop, just nudge me. When you're finished. Okay, well, I might, I, I, I'll never be finished. <laughs> anyway, the, the, I'll go for a few more, because this escalation uh, is the German response, the submarine. The submarine is a powerful new weapon that is being developed before the First World War. Initially, submarines were coastal defense weapons, defend your homeland. But before the First World War, the British were pioneering in long-range submarines, submarines that can take the fight to the enemy's littoral waters, to the enemy's home waters. So you have the development now of long-range submarines. And right before the First World War, in the, an amendment to the German Navy Law of 1912, the Germans start to invest heavily in submarines and move toward building long-range submarines. This is the U-9, a very famous submarine. It sank four British cruisers in the second half of 1914 in the North Sea and off the coast of, of the Netherlands. Again, the submarine now is going to be the weapon 
much like in the Second World War, the V1, V2, vengeance weapons, now the Germans are employing submarines as a weapon to go after the British. And here you see a stamp from the time, God punish England. Okay, if God gave Britain a geographical advantage, now Germany is being blessed by God with submarines going out on the dawn patrol, as you can see, to go out and raid on British commerce. And Mike talked about the impact in the spring of 1915 of the Lusitania being hit, sunk. Again, this gets involved then with the U.S. being awakened to the danger. Um, again, Robert Ballard uh, discovering the wreck and the wonderful artwork that has been derived from that. Our New York Times. Wilson, part of what he wants to do is a preparedness, hedging his bets, keep the U.S. out of the war, at the same time build up our Navy. Here's a $2 bill. Again, much like the Germans, what do you see? New York-class battleship there. And in a speech in February 1916 in St. Louis, there's no other Navy in the world that has to cover so great an area. We ought to have incomparably the greatest Navy in the world. Again, the war is changing around ideas of American security. We're no longer as secure as we were when the British were dominant. We have to look to ourselves, self-help as the international relations experts say. We have to build up our own power. And in this, the US is starting to build a Navy second to none. Well, he kept us out of war for a while. Closely contested election of 1916, our red and blue states. The enemy, though, gets a vote, as we like to say. Imperial Germany, frustrated at sea. The German admirals argue that the submarine has to be unleashed. And so you have, in January 9th, 1917, the Crown co Conference at Pless in Silesia. The Kaiser agrees to what the admirals want to do, to do an all-out submarine offensive, unrestricted submarine warfare, even though they know that this will bring the United States into the war against them. Admiral Holzendorf writes a very powerful memorandum arguing the case for, for the submarine decision to break England's backbone. Uh, the Freischutz. Famous opera from the German Romantic era at the beginning of the 19th century. The story is the man who wants to get the girl. And he sells his soul to get the silver bullet, we would say. The accurate precision weapon so he can hit the target and then win the love of the girl in the contest. This is one of the Kaiser's favorite operas. And again, it captures something. The submarines to the Germans are the silver bullet. They think they can win in six months by shooting this silver bullet. This idea that the hunter out there hunting can bring down its target, in this case, severing the backbone of England, its merchant fleet. The generals agree with the admirals. Again, you can see the hunting trophies behind, very much part of the German elite's culture and background. This is going to be the shot that brings down the British. Civilian head, Bettmann Holweg, Chancellor, I, he's basically told, we'll fire you if you don't go along with us. Again, it's the Prussian militarism that Mike talked about. Who's in charge in Berlin? Well, it's not the Chancellor. It's the generals and the admirals who have the Kaiser's ear. And the Kaiser, if Wilson wants war, so be it. Well, again, to link it up to today, we like to think of island chains in the Western Pacific. Well, you can also look at the, uh, Europe as a bunch of island chains. And the Germans with their submarines, with the long-range weapon, escalating the fight, 
to get back at the British are going to take the fight to the North Sea, beyond the North Sea, into the Atlantic, and of course, sinking American ships. By the way, those paintings are by Willy Stauer, who is one of Kaiser Wilhelm's favorite uh, artists because he captured maritime events. And the results are what the Germans initially thought, high levels of sinking ships. It is breaking Britain's backbone in this wrestling contest. The first sea lord, Admiral Jellicoe, in a important meeting of generals and admirals in Britain, says it's basically hopeless. When the generals say we have to plan for next year's war of 1918, Jellicoe says we can't plan for it. We're going to lose by then. We ought to be thinking about making peace. We're losing command of the maritime commons. Fortunately for Britain, the Prime Minister, Lloyd George, uh, decides that he has to move against Jellicoe. Eventually, he fires Jellicoe on Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas, Admiral Jellicoe, you're fired. Uh, out the door. Again, to Lloyd George, lost his nerve. Well, today we remember the declaration of war on April 6th, and in that speech of April 2nd to a joint session of Congress uh, against mankind. The U.S. is now bringing its power to bear into Europe. And let me leave you with just this one last thought, that the United States in this war, to be successful, had to fight as part of a coalition, even though we were an associated power. And again, this is one of the important residences for today. The United States is not alone even as a superpower. It has to be part of a coalition of countries have shared values and agreement with each other. This movement American power to Europe was inconceivable in 1913. No one could have imagined how American power would be brought to bear on the world stage uh, within just a few years. And I want to highlight though and underscore just how important it is that the United States position on the world is not just as a lonely superpower, but also as a superpower that's engaged with other countries to try to promote a more peaceful world. Thank you. Our third and last speaker, uh, after which we will have, after which we will have uh, questions and answers and comments is Edward Engel. Wengel. L-E-N-G-E-L, I don't care for this instrument, uh, who is the chief historian of the White House Historical Association, located about eight blocks from here. It was a short walk. I hope he didn't walk this I morning. Did. Oh, you did? Yes. I'm sorry to hear that. A little that. bit soggy. Yeah, you're uh, <laughs> I had not noticed. Uh, before beginning work there last fall, he directed the Washington Papers Project for many years. He's the author of several books, including George Washington. Can you be here? Can I be heard? A Military Life. Oh, now I can. To Conquer, to Conquer Hell, The Muse Are Gone Offensive 1918, which was a very important offensive. Um, how George Washington Built His and the Nation's Property, Prosperity and the Army's Historical Foundation Award-winning book, Thunder and Flames, Americans in the Crucible of Combat, 1917-1918. He's a regular contributor to magazines including Military History, Military History Quarterly, and appears often on television and radio, remember that, including NPR, and my favorite program, and I've seen him on it, the History Channel. We do have a distinguished panel. Thank you. 
And no, that History Channel program was not Ice Road Truckers or Swamp People. <laughs> it was one of those, those rare aberrations of the History Channel these days where they actually had a program that had something to do with history. This was about 10 years ago. So things have changed, alas. So I've been asked to speak to all of you about why World War I still matters, and that suggests a somewhat personal view of the topic which is appropriate for me and the approach that I take to history. If any of you ever saw that wonderful television series back from 1969 of Sir Kenneth Clark, uh, Civilization, and he, he uh, subtitles it, A Personal View. I think ultimately historians take personal views of history and I try to embrace that in, in my own approach to it. When I was at the Washington Papers, many people seemed to imagine they would call me up or send me emails, can you tell me what color shoes George Washington was wearing on July 9th, 1792 when he went to Congress? And they imagined I'd be, oh, it was black. Well, that's not really the way I, I think about history, and my approach to history is more if, if you want the details, you can look them up. Uh, but I'm, and I do look them up, and I work with them, and I work with primary sources, but ultimately I try to interpret the way people experience history and the way they respond to it. And as I speak about World War I today, I will begin with a personal view. I will extend to a larger view of how the personal experience of World War I impacted the way we as Americans see ourselves as a country and we see our interactions with other countries around the world, and then with a statement of why that personal view did indeed have a very real and tangible impact on the large issues of history and how we, how we live our lives today. I began my interest in the First World War way back when I first entered graduate school in the early 1990s. I majored in modern British history. And I discovered, I can't exactly remember how, no, I, actually I know how, I read uh, Paul Fussell's book, The Great War and Modern Memory. Probably many of you have, have read this book and he, this is probably one of the best-selling books on World War I, aside from All Quiet on the Western Front. It's the most assigned in uh, American undergraduate schools. Uh, I personally, I apologize if I'm shocking any of, you, any of you. I think it's a terrible book. I, I have very little regard for that book. He takes three British memoirs, um, Goodbye to All That by Robert Graves, Memoirs of an Infantry Officer by Siegfried Sassoon, and Undertones of War by Edmund Blunden, and he extrapolates from them to speak of the World War I experience. And he suggests that what these men experienced is what all men experienced of the First World War, and it is what we should know and understand about World War I. He essentially repeats a, an idea that originates in the 1920s of naivete and disillusionment. That in 1914, or in our case in 1917, all young men were filled with ideas of idealism 
and hope and chivalry and traditional beliefs in politics and religion. And they marched off to war and they were broken. And their ideals were shattered, their belief in country and king or president as the case may be, their belief in God, their belief in hope was shattered and they came home broken men and they were disillusioned. And this whole concept of the lost generation of the idea of disillusionment as being some kind of an overarching theme that defines everything is something that Paul Fussell repeats. Now, I took that and I decided, well, what if I read hundreds upon hundreds of memoirs, diaries, letters, of soldiers from different countries and, and how they experienced the war. And I'm not the only one who did this. Uh, I'm certainly not claiming to have come up with an original idea here because there are other scholars who've done this too. Uh, and tried to get a broader sense, a broader understanding of what that experience means. And what you discover uh, on, on reading these is first of all, this is some of the best literature of the 20th century. It's some of the best literature in the history of, of the Western world, in my opinion, uh, from British memoirs, also American memoirs, which are generally understudied, books such as uh, Toward the Flame by Hervey Allen, superb book, uh, just a superb book, uh, although not generally taught in our schools today. Um, memoirs of doctors, memoirs of, of uh, nurses. There's uh, not only Vera Bertain's wonderful book, but Florence Farnborough, who is an English nurse who want to serve in Russia during World War I. Memoirs, diaries by, by women, by men. Um, unfortunately, we, we have very few from, from African Americans. Uh, they're, they're just very hard to find, but from many different perspectives. Superb books, but what you find is that each individual experience was individual. Each man or woman brought their own ideas and preconceptions into the war. They each experienced the war individually, and they each left the war with their own ideas. Uh, the only kind of generalization you can make is really ambivalence. There were many thousands of men and women who want and fought in the trenches with all the mud and the blood and the artillery and the machine guns and all the rest that we hear about in the media today and the squalor. And they left saying, not only I did the right thing, but I would do it again if I could. And some of them indeed said, this made me a better person. And these were not just fringe elements or lunatics, but these were people who were human beings who took their own experiences away from the war. I personally don't believe any one individual experience is more valid than another. There's this kind of concept in much of scholarship that, well, you know, if you read a book by somebody who want, uh, like Eric Maria Remark, and they experience the war for maybe a couple of months in a relatively quiet sector of the front before being evacuated, and they were disillusioned, that that is somehow a more valid interpretation of the war than somebody uh, who, like um, Edward Carrington or Guy Chapman, English soldiers, or Ernst Jünger, uh, the German soldier, fought throughout the war 1914 to 1918 in some of the heaviest fighting imaginable and said, I believe in my country, I believe in my God as they came out. That's not valid. 
because it doesn't reflect what we believe the war really means. Uh, that was something, that was the approach that I took to the study of World War I. I wrote uh, my book, To Conquer Hell, on the Ms. Argonne, 1918, um, back 10 years ago it is now, for the simple fact that I was fascinated in the subject, but nobody had written a comprehensive history of this battle before, which is the largest and bloodiest battle in American history. Uh, there had been a couple of relatively minor works. But I wanted to approach the battle not only as an, ex as, as an actual battle with the regiments and divisions and what happened, this was from September 26th to November 11th, 1918, but the experience of that battle. And I, I tried to, to write about it from the personal perspective. I think it interesting that at least the last time I was there in the um, National Museum of American History on the Mall here, you can go through their very interesting and, and generally extremely well done exhibit on the American experience of warfare. Uh, that hall on World War I does not even mention the Meuse-Argonne, which is the largest and bloodiest battle in American history, period in which uh, we have, again, to talk about another preconception about America's experience of the war, the idea that, well, the war was practically over when we entered. It was certainly practically over by the time the first soldiers and Marines entered combat in May and June of 1918. We had very little impact. The Germans were running away. Or as my son's textbook, uh, high school textbook said simply, we had more tanks, artillery, and planes than they did, and the war was over. Period. That's all you need to know. If you look at the Ms. Argonne, uh, from almost all of the fighting in that battle took place from about September 26 to October 15 to 16, the vast majority of 26,000 killed were killed in those three weeks. And if you extend that and talk about that intensity to the length of time that the Battle of the Somme or the Battle of Verdun in 1916 lasted, each of them lasted for several months, the American combat in the Meuse-Argonne was more intense than the average of the Battle of the Somme at Verdun. We did experience very intense fighting. Just one brief point to make. Now, after I wrote this book, one of the most rewarding aspects of it is that many, not only veterans of whether World War II or later wars contacted me, but especially many descendants of American veterans of World War I contacted me. And they had different perspectives, of course, as you would expect. Almost all of them said that their father, grandfather, as the case may be, uncle, great uncle, wouldn't talk about the war when they came back. But almost every one of them said, here is how my father, grandfather, uncle, etc., etc., his experience of the war changed my life, the way I live it today. And there was one particular experience of that, and we talk about why World War I matters, and I think it is an individual issue, uh, that I'd like to mention. When I wrote my book, I gave some prominence to the experiences of a young man, with emphasis on the young, named Ernest Rentmore, who was the youngest American combat veteran of World War I. I probably think younger than any in World War II or later as well. He was 13 when he reached the front 
1918. He saw combat over an extended period firsthand. He witnessed hand-to-hand -hand fighting, combat in the Mizargon. He was shelled, he was gassed, he was wounded several times. Uh, this is all well documented uh, and was eventually evacuated in October of 1918. So I wrote about him and a few months after I finished my book, I got a phone call and I uh, picked it up and uh, the gentleman on the other end of the line said, hello, my name is Ernest Rentmore. And it was actually his son. It was his son, Ernest Rentmore Jr. I know he wouldn't mind me talking about this because uh, we've, we've actually had a semi-public discussion in some magazines. Wonderful, wonderful man who uh, never knew his father. His father had married several times, had children by several different women, uh, had tremendous trouble after returning from the war. Remember, he came back, he was 14 years old, uh, and he had to try to readjust. Uh, he had tremendous trouble doing that, was never able to settle down. And so Ernest Rentmore Jr., uh, his father, this was his final marriage. He was my age. Um, his final marriage um, just left before uh, he had a chance even to meet his son. So Ernest, uh, again a wonderful, wonderful fellow, uh, was on this quest to find his father again. And uh, he discovered what had been about to be thrown out in a garage, his father's scrapbook, all of his medals, uh, all of his other memorabilia from the war, he rediscovered this and he said, Ed, I'd like you to go with me to Arlington Cemetery where my father is buried to, uh, to see my dad. I never, never went there before. Uh, one of the most powerful experiences in my life, we went there together to, to Arlington Cemetery and Ernest broke down crying in front of his father's grave. It was a day like today uh, and there were funerals taking place nearby of... Um, a gentleman who had been uh, killed in the line of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. At the time, uh, we walked away from the grave, and this it's raining. Uh, we didn't have umbrellas. We weren't prepared. This SUV pulls up, and the fellow rolls down the window and says, can I give you a ride? And uh, we said, yeah, please, and we get in. And it's a, a gentleman, African-American gentleman, is an officer. And uh, he says, I've been, he was, we talked about our experiences, he talked about his. He said, this was after the scandals at Arlington Cemetery about the burials. He said, I've been assigned here to get things in order because I have a lot of friends who are buried here. And that was an incredibly powerful experience. But talking with, with Ernest and talking with, with this gentleman and so many others about it, I realized that if you look at it and you look at families and you look at people, you can see that, that there are so many uh, ways in which people live today that were affected uh, by their, their parents, grandparents, and others uh, and what they brought back from the war. Now, more broadly speaking, all you have to do is just get slightly below the surface to see how this war has impacted American culture and society. Read any literature from the period. You can read everything from uh, The Great Gatsby to one of my favorite authors, Raymond Chandler, uh, and his book, Philip Marlowe, is a World War I veteran. Uh, the, the war is very much just below the surface to films. 
Uh, if any of you have ever seen Busby Berkeley uh, musicals, uh, these musicals were indeed all the choreography and everything, and he had a wonderful um, uh, piece called Remember uh, My Forgotten Man, a great piece uh, from Gold Diggers of 1933 uh, during the Great Depression. Uh, the choreography is men, as Busby Berkeley was involved in World War I in managing military marches and military events to try to replicate that. He had a tremendous sympathy for those who served. Uh, and you can see it in any films from the 30s and 40s. The war is always there. Two, more broadly speaking, and this is certainly something that I've found, the divisions between the United States and Europe and the European Union and other parts of the world in many ways reflect our different understandings of war that originate with World War I. I've uh, been at military museums all over the world. Uh, Mike was mentioning that fantastic uh, French army museum near the Invalides. If any of you haven't been there, it's, it's tremendous. To the Belgian in Flanders Fields uh, Museum near Ypres in Belgium. Uh, to the great German war museum in Dresden. You can compare those and their approach to understanding war, to of course the Imperial War Museum in London to just go down the road to the superb, fantastic uh, Museum of the Marine Corps in Quantico and look at how in the Marine Corps Museum when they handle Bellow Wood, I'm not putting down this museum at all, it's a superb museum, and they handle Bellow Wood, you walk into this exhibit and they have these newspaper headlines saying, Germans marching on Paris, Germans about to capture Paris, in come the Marines. And then you see this fantastic uh, movie, short movie, uh, depicting Bella Wood. It's like something from Saving Private Ryan. It's, it's excellent. But it's full of that sense of grit, determination. The Americans are there to save Europe. And by God, the Marines do it. Now you go to, um, in Flanders Fields, by contrast, uh, you'll see a bunch of dead horses up on stakes with... Uh, mist and fog floating around them and sounds of people screaming and artillery shells exploding. And there's that sense very much there of squalor and misery and war is always bad and war is always a mistake to our sense that war is still something very, very different that has a purpose that actually, that actually leads to something. Um, this has certainly, and you can see the difference in approaches to war during the periods of the Iraq war, the Afghan wars are still going on, and the sense different ways of, of how we approach that, and how we approach um, uh, ideas of, of terrorism. Now I'm, I'm gonna end up just with a couple of, couple of brief points. We've heard some comments on, on, uh, from, uh, in John's excellent presentation about coalition warfare and, and everything uh, that he says is, is quite true. Certainly in, in our realization that as we go off to, to fight World War I for the first time as an associated power rather than as an ally with France and Britain and with Belgium and Serbia and all the rest and Italy uh, and Japan, uh, lest we forget that, that uh, we realize that, um, no, we do need other countries. 
the the experience on the battlefront on the Western Front, as I wrote in my book Thunder and Flames, is actually very different. And uh, I noticed that American studies of the war, if you just look at Bellow Wood, and I'll, I'll really simplify it. In June 1918, the uh, Marines come and they fight at, at Bellow Wood the first, the first weeks of June, take tremendous casualties. Uh, the first day of Bellow Wood, I think it's June 6, uh, uh, 1918, the Marines suffer more dead, more casualties than they would into the Battle of Tarawa in, in World War II in the Pacific. Um, the, the concept there in all the American sources is that the French, the Germans had launched their final offensive of the war. The French were broken, the French were running away, the French were looting their own people, the French were cowards, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's what, you know, the cheese-eating surrender monkeys uh, from the Simpsons. Simpsons. Uh, and then the Marines came and, by God, we saved Paris. The behavior of the Marines was incredible. Uh, it was heroic, but they didn't save Paris. The German offensive was not aimed at Paris. It had already stopped, and it had been defeated by the French uh, before the Marines arrived. Uh, the Marines attacked and suffered far more casualties than they needed to take, partly in contrast because they insisted on doing it on their own. Right next door, a unit of the U.S. Army was integrated with a French unit, uh, was assaulting a more strongly held German sector of the line, and did it by means of French tactics and suffered almost no casualties and captured the ground. Uh, so we had the sense, nevertheless, that the way we fought and the American way of war was inherently superior to anything that uh, the French or the British had to teach us. And indeed, despite the experiences on the front, we came away with that idea. I discovered in the National Archives a U.S. Army policy position paper from 1919 that said, here's how you present this war to the media. And the way you present the war to the media is the French were broken the French were running away, the French couldn't fight, the French were going to lose Paris, the British were exhausted, the British couldn't fight anymore, and then by God we came and we saved Paris. And it's much of that sense of the war became a, a dominant idea. Um, and in fact, in the New York Times uh, recently, there have been articles claiming in all seriousness that the French were broken, they were running away, et cetera, et cetera. The Americans came and they brought a new idea to World War I, the art of the frontal assault, the charge, which the British and German, the British and French had quite forgotten. Uh, we charged them at Belleau Wood and by God we saved Paris. Uh, and this is in the New York Times in a recent uh, article in all seriousness, and it has been repeated many times, and it still remains a dominant trope. I'll end up just with this comment that returning to the personal experience of the war is vital. 
I would ask you to remember that those who uh, both instigated and fought the First World War, for many of them, from Adolf Hitler to Benito Mussolini to uh, Sir Anthony Eden to Winston Churchill uh, to many others, for them the war was a personal experience. World War I was a personal experience. And what they brought from that war, uh, and for the Americans, Harry Truman, George Patton, Douglas MacArthur, for them that war was a personal experience and their personal understanding of that war profoundly defined their understanding of World War II and all the great events that were to follow and how we understand the world today. Thanks. Thank you. Well, this is quite an impressive panel. I don't know what to say. I, I believe that I learned more about World War I than my poor students did in 48 straight semesters <laughs> today, in the last hour. And, um, and they thought I emphasized it too much. I think we have at least 20, 25 minutes or half an hour for, uh, for the, uh, for the uh, participants here in, in the audience, caught the audience, to uh, ask questions or provide comments of any of the three panelists. And uh, go ahead, sir. Just a few brief observations. It struck me that, one, uh, that as Americans, informed Americans looked at Europe, they saw after the Napoleonic Wars that Europe had a 30-year peace after Waterloo. They saw in 1878, the Kaiser um, was able to broker a peace with, with contested claims. But this project failed, and in the coming of the Great War, it looked like Europe could not solve this problem on its own, that the nations were bleeding themselves, and that they had already suffered so much that no solution other than total victory was politically possible. And that, that combined with the German effort essentially to drive the US Navy out of the Atlantic uh, in other words, its ambitions far exceeded its capabilities. Well, I, I, uh, in, the, in the first presentation, I agreed with everything you said, but for the effects of the Zeremon telegram, which I've seen political cartoons that were published in the last book on the Zeremon telegram, that many Americans took this as a joke, that Mexico was helpless, the Germans had no way, it was a pipe dream, that it just showed hostile intent, and the worst thing to do in the international politics is hostile intent without the capability to bring it forward. It just irritates and provokes. Now, there were efforts by Wilson to broker a peace, essentially to force a peace on the belligerents. And essentially, Germany had a choice of opting for unrestricted submarine warfare, knowing it would bring the US in, or to accept a US-brokered peace, which would be an allied victory in all but name. So that, that, those are my, my thoughts. So let me just address the German telegram. I think the cartoons you're referring to are in the period between its release and when the Germans admitted that they sent it. Okay. So there is this period where a lot of Americans are saying the Germans just couldn't be this stupid. And then when Zimmerman admitted, yes, that's ours, then the, the mood shifts dramatically. And the other thing that I would add is that this is not an isolated incident. Remember, the British are whipping up the Arab revolt with you know, Lawrence of Arabia. The Germans try to revolt in Ireland that, that produces the Easter Rising. Um, so there is definitely this sense. The Amer Americans talk a lot in 1916 that our fate is going to be China's. That is a rich country that's picked apart by other people. 
if we don't do something to stop it. And then again, that Zimmerman telegram and that cartoon from Life magazine just shows that's exactly what the Germans are thinking about. So hostile intent for sure, whether Americans want to stick around and see whether they're capable of actually pulling it off, that's a different question. This is for all four of you. What do you think the military... No, all three of you. <laughs> Please. Uh, you can just make it two if you can answer it. What do you guys think the military-industrial complex was during World War I? I can answer for you guys. Want to go ahead? Who, who wants to go first? Not you. Well, um, already you see, uh, before the uh, First World War, what could be called a naval industrial complex in a number of countries, in Britain, in the United States, in Germany. Uh, there's already a great deal of uh, uh, public uh, debate about how that naval industrial complex is warping politics uh, in a way that uh, is unhelpful to maintaining the peace, that it somehow becomes a driver of suspicion and war. So you have actually prominent politicians like David Lloyd George in Britain who is going to become prime minister during the war and the great war leader of Britain uh, during the First World War, who before the war is decrying all the money being spent on armaments. So uh, already you, you see before the First World War a sense that, um, that uh, the economies of the major powers and also public perceptions, propaganda, are driving countries toward hostile intent toward another, and, and it, it isn't a good thing. And of course, the famous book that came out before the First World War by Norman Angel uh, about the illusion, the great illusion is that great powers can actually fight each other and that somebody can win. Nobody can win when great powers fight each other. From an economic point of view, it makes no sense. And that great powers will only go to war for atavistic purposes, not for real genuine purposes of promoting the well-being of their of their countries. In the interwar period, of course, it accelerates. Uh, the famous historian Charles Beard had a whole book about how the naval industrial complex, if you will, warped American politics in the interwar period. And this is a danger. And of course, you have the whole thesis about merchants of death and daddy warbucks and the rest, all of these people who, who benefited from the war. Uh, whereas the common people somehow did not benefit from the war. And this is a trope in all the major powers in uh, Britain and Germany and the United States, that the real winners of the war were somehow the 1%, the as we might say, and not the 99%. So this is very powerful propaganda that, that, that exists, point of view, uh, both before, during, uh, and after the, the, the First World War. I hope that more or less gets to your point. Yep. And you want to? I think that's. I mean, the only thing that I would add is the, the debate in the United States is whether armaments production should be in the hands of private industry or whether the government ought to do it. And then there's a proposal in something called the 1916 National Defense Act mm -hmm. to create national armaments factories. And the Senate absolutely rejected it and said that it had to stay in private industry. Mm -hmm. Anybody who speaks first? Speak first. Yeah, I'm, I'm Russell King. I, I'll direct this. Um, question to Professor Maurer. Mm -hmm. After both World War I and World War II, I believe the victorious powers made demands of a limitation of, of German militarization. Mm -hmm. And since then, of course, Germany, uh, West Germany joined NATO, and then there was the fall of the Soviet Union, and, and East Germany joined NATO, and Russia lost a lot of ground, particularly in the Baltic and the Black Sea regions. And uh, right now, Donald Trump has, has, has made demands that NATO 
pay more of their share. He, I don't have, don't know what he said specifically about Germany, but can you tell us uh, since World War One what has has been the perception of the U.S. perception and the Russian perception of German militarization based upon those agreements and and the, the changing strategic situation after? Good, good, good question. Here, here, here are some thoughts. Um, of course, after the First World War, as part of the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was disarmed, uh, down to 100,000 long service for the army, uh, a navy that was restricted as well in personnel and the type of ships that it could have. And in the 1920s, Germany was spending a little over 1% of GDP, in other words, national income, on defense. So relatively small percentage. Uh, uh, of the German economy is being channeled toward a defense effort in the 20s. Um, fast forward to today, basically it's 1% of GDP is what the Germans are spending today. In other words, they are disarmed in some way, if you measure it in relative economic strength, the way the Weimar Republic was. Now, the United States, we, we've tried to say that the Europeans should do more for their own defense, and, you know, as Ed highlighted, Often we put down the Europeans for not doing enough for, on their own defense. During the Cold War, Jack, you'll remember this, when it was the 3% solution in the uh, 70s and 80s, we wanted the Europeans to spend at least 3%, and now it's the 2% solution that, that's put forward. And, and again, if you look at it in this relative terms as well, if Germany were to spend 2% of GDP on defense, it would be spending more on defense than Putin's Russia can. So again, Europe is an economic superpower as a whole and, and uh, can very well, if, if, if it's spent more on defense, uh, um, overshadow Russia uh, today. So Europe is effectively disarmed, and again, it's a measure, I think, of the success of the end of the Cold War, that uh, Europe is as peaceful as it is, and people spend as little as they do on, on uh, uh, defense. I hope that more or less gets to your question. Obviously, the 30s, with Hitler coming to power and the end of the Weimar Republic, Germany rearmed very quickly and, and uh, uh, you know, started the Second World War. But um, uh, Germany today is spending, you know, basically on par with what Weimar Germany was. Uh, now, you could say that's enough, given, you know, the situation in Europe today. Maybe it doesn't require more. I, I have a question. Um, for the gentleman on the far left, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing to come to a talk on Americans involved in the First World War and downplay the role of our soldiers in the First World War. I'm really upset with, about that. Um, I lived in France for 10 years. My husband worked for the UN. Both my grandfathers were in the entire length of the war. I've been to all the First World War sites in France and in Belgium several times over. And the French and the Belgian people and the British people, and Belgians and Great Britain and others have been so grateful of our efforts in the First World War. So grateful. And, I mean, having the French tell you <laughs> we're very grateful for our involvement. It says a lot. <laughs> uh, really. And, and it, 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 um, it, it's, it's, it, 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 died and who were injured and who suffered the results of that war and their children. So it, it um, that was that was not a good comment. Um, I, I also wanted to ask about at the end of the First World War there were riots in Germany. Um, could you discuss those riots that were occurring in Germany which perhaps brought the close to the war a little bit sooner? 
the German people were upset with their government. They were upset with um, left food, their left it isn't a riot it's a revolution mm -hmm. I mean it, it's it's an attempt um, you know I mean again I, I tell students this all the time I put up a map of the four empires that ran Central and Eastern Europe the Russian Ottoman Austrian and German they're there for centuries and in 1914 even people that hated those empires didn't envision that one of them let alone four of them was going to go away so what happens at the end of World War I is this contest that I don't think is answered until the end of the Cold War about what replaces it. So there are folks who want to put in place um, authoritarian fascist style governments. There are folks that want to put Bolshevik style, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the argument that the First World War doesn't end in Europe until the Soviet Union goes away. Mm -hmm. It is itself a product of the First World War. Um, we, we chop it up into distinctive time periods to make ourselves feel better or to make it easier to teach or I don't know what. So the violence that's happening in Germany in 1919 is over what the future direction of Germany is going to look like. So there's a, there's a Bolshevik, what's called a Spartacist revolution that happens in Germany. If you walk through Berlin, that's about the only stuff you'll see memorials to from this period is the Spartacist revolt. And then there is this group called the Freikorps that comes up, um, a right-wing proto-fascist group that tries to destroy the Spartacists. So they're not riots. It's, it, it's, it's, it's very high-level violence to determine what the future course of the German government will look like. Uh, I'll just make one comment there because I think by talking about the gentleman on the left supposedly underplaying the role of soldiers in the First World War, it's hard to imagine for me that anybody could so profoundly misunderstand what I said, <laughs> utterly and completely misunderstand what I said. I have dedicated my life and my profession to understanding and dedicating myself to the role of American soldiers in the First World War. When I say that the American soldiers did not save Paris, to say that that somehow therefore underplays their role or their sacrifice is, forgive me for saying so, utterly ludicrous. Utterly ludicrous. I have had once or twice I wrote my book, I wrote two books on American soldiers in the First World War. Uh, I'd ask you how many you've written. I had somebody, when I wrote about American soldiers suffering tremendous casualties um, in frontal assaults because they were undertrained, somebody wrote to me and said, you, sir, are unpatriotic. And I, it boggles my imagination that by showing compassion and empathy and dedicating my career to soldiers in World War I, that is somehow underplaying their sacrifice. Let me uh, jump in right here, because Professor Langle's on my right, not my left. I have absolutely no idea where the thesis of your question was derived. Zero. Yes? Uh, yes, uh, we now have 100 years, precisely, of, of uh, hindsight, and with that, I don't think there was a choice. Mm -hmm. I don't think there was a choice. I think when you look at the prime, uh, the, you know, I just had this discussion. Yes, uh, the question is not whether there was a choice, it was a policy to I mean, from the perspective of 100 years, I think it's easier to sit and criticize from the perspective of 100 years than it is to see it in the perspective. I just don't think the American people would have given Woodrow Wilson a choice. 
Had he not made the declaration, I honestly believe the U.S. Senate would have done it without him. It, it's, a, it's a great counterfactual question, and it's one that, you know, the 100th anniversary of the First World War is raised in Britain, and, uh, you know, should Britain have entered the war in 1914? Should we have gone to war? In, and, and, you know, I concur with Mike. Um, there wasn't much of a choice. Germany was so obnoxious in the way it was behaving that it, it had to be fought. I, I, I would say that, yeah, it was wise. Uh, we don't know what the alternative history would have been if the United States had not entered the war. Maybe the countries would have been so broken that we would have still remained secure. You could probably make that case. But I, I wouldn't want to run that risk. Uh, you know, Imperial Germany, uh, founded in January 1871, proclaimed in the whole of mirrors in Versailles, the very same place where the uh, Versailles Treaty was inflicted on, on Germany in 1919, in June of 1919. Um, I think Germany had to be beaten. So I, in that sense, I think it was a wise. Now, where things fall down is that, you know, it's the old pottery barn thing that Colin Powell talked about. Once it's broken, you have to put it back together again somehow. And the U.S. had to play a, a larger role in the world like it did after the Second World War. And uh, in that sense, we were not wise as a people, I don't want to blame just governments and leaders, as a people we weren't ready for the role of helping in the reconstruction and the security of Europe that we were after the Second World War. So I think those two things have to go together in the sense that one, I think it was wise to go to war, it was the right call to make, but secondly, uh, the, the other right call that had to be made was that after the war we had to be more generous and more involved in the security of Europe and its economic reconstruction. And in that sense, I don't think we were wise. But boy, there it's almost inevitable. I can't even imagine. Yeah. The, I think it was almost bound to play out in some tragic way. I mean, the Wilson, way it did. Wilson said it himself that war is sin and sin requires redemption. Mm -hmm. well, he, he could have come out and said, actually, lose thing you had more materials on it, therefore it was. Yeah, I don't even think that's, I honestly don't think that's relevant. I mean, it, it, the, the analogy I always make is if. If, God forbid, a foreign power shot down a 747 that's flying from Washington to London, would the American people care what was in the cargo hold? The answer is no. And the same thing is true in 1915. The, the obnoxious act is shooting, is sinking a ship, whether it's carrying armaments or not, with 128 Americans, 1,200 people, many of them women and children. That's what the American people found obnoxious. Whether or there was or was not armaments in the hold, honestly, nobody cares about. It's again, it's one of those things from the 30s and 60s that historians then latched on to. It's not what people at that time period are thinking. Question here. Um, first of all, Stella Pamela, thank you so much for illuminating so much about the war. Thank you. Professor, is it Michael. Yes. Sorry, I couldn't get it. That's fine, sure. You made a very interesting uh, comment towards the end of your remarks when you made reference to an American unit that was integrated in the French army that uh, suffered little or no casualties and, and held the ground. Might that have been one of those uh, African-American units that were, was integrated into the French army like the 369th Regiment in Harlem or another one of the African-American units? Because I don't remember a lot of uh, American units other than those being integrated into the French army. Thank you so much for asking that question. I was hoping somebody would, because after I finished my talk, I realized I'd written down here to talk about the African-American units <coughs> in the war, and then 
like I often do, I get carried away and forgot. <laughs> I apologize. Um, yeah. <laughs> in this case, no, it was not. Uh, this was a unit of the uh, third division U.S., of course, which were not integrated. But let me uh, make some comments on that very briefly. Um, broadly speaking, racism was pervasive in the American Expeditionary Forces in World War I. It, it was profound and pervasive. Uh, all one has to do is, is read the, the primary source material from the time. There were two divisions, uh, African Americans, the 92nd and 93rd divisions. Uh, they, very early on, they had junior officers who were also black, um, but they were removed before they were actually moved to combat. So both divisions went off to France with all white officers. Their experiences were completely different. Uh, the 93rd Division uh, went and it served with the French uh, under French command and it fought in the Champagne region um, to the west of the American forces fighting in the Meuse-Argonne as well as on other fronts. Their experience under the French was very, very good. They fought very well, they fought very effectively. Uh, the French, uh, of course, had experiences with their own black colonial troops, uh, the Senegalese, of course, but of course they're not the same people. They're, they're different people, different experiences. However, the French had a willingness to trust uh, these troops and to put them in positions where they could make an impact, and they did. Now, the 92nd Division had unfortunately a very different experience. Uh, one regiment of that division, the uh, 368th, was put on the west flank of the first days of the American assault in the, the Meuse-Argonne, primarily to serve a liaison function between the American troops and the French. And largely because of the lack of training and lack of experience of their officers, they broke. Uh, they advanced actually fairly quickly, but when they came under heavy German resistance uh, toward the end of September 1918, uh, their officers were confused. They didn't want know what to do. There was maneuver pro there were new maneuver problems on the battlefield, and they withdrew. They didn't actually I shouldn't actually say the word broke. Uh, I'll retract that, but they retreated uh, in some disorder. And the, the lesson that most um, of the hierarchy and the U.S. Armed Forces took from that was that you can't trust black troops under fire. And they took that one example of the 368th, and these officers were investigated, and the case was investigated, and they were, uh, as I believe, they were exonerated. Um, they took that to be as, as typifying what would happen when you put uh, black troops under fire, and they ignored almost entirely the experiences of the, uh, of the 93rd Division, which were profoundly different. That's one of the areas where, talking about why World War I still matters, that had a very clear and tangible impact on military policy in World War II, and it was one of the reasons why the hierarchy continued to be so resistant to integration. Yes, it was. Yes. The the Harlem Hellfighters were. Okay. Yeah, the 369th. Yes. They they were generally well 
Okay. We have time they for were. two more questions. Yes, sir. Thank you. Plus, plus mine. Sorry. So, so I, I was wondering, um, I'm, still, I'm still trying to figure out that one course World War I. I don't know if anyone's going huh. to answer it, but let me just see, see some of the things that uh, maybe we missed. Uh, countries seem to fight the last war they were in. So for the United States, that would have been the Spanish-American War, which ended. anti-war movement led in part by, by uh, Mark Twain and a kind of, uh, I, I was wondering if anyone could address whether that had informed the, the sentiment of not going to war, was that part of the basis of it. The second question had to do with the connection between the wealth of the United States, which had grown to this a tremendous amount of wealth in terms of capital that was being exported before the war, and then after the war, it was also used as part of the Dawes plan to reconstruct Europe, creating this uh, a globalized economy, which eventually uh, became, let's just say, collapsed during the 29 Depression. But the, the question of that, that, that the export of capital was actually as much as important as the export of manufactured goods. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, the third thing is, uh, the clash of declining empire and an emerging empire. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if Germany was the emerging empire and of course uh, 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 the United States being the, mm -hmm. well, uh, the, the British being the declining empire. And that, because it's used in terms of China, mm -hmm. US. Yeah. So. Yeah. You mind if I? Yeah, okay, so three, three quick observations mm -hmm. to you, three quick questions. The first is the U.S. is certainly not fighting this war like the Spanish-American War. They knew this was going to be completely different. They made different mistakes, but they clearly understand. It's going to have to be a draft army. It's going to have to be done completely differently, in part because the army came away from 1898 completely dissatisfied with how they had done it. It's why my institution is created, the Army War College is created. Second, the question that you raised is a really important one, and it's one we still wrestle with how much of America's global power and presence ought to be economic. That is, what instruments of national power and national security ought the United States use? Should they be economic or should they be military? That's a point that is, that is quite heavily debated. Um, and you had a third point, and I had a good answer to it, and now I forgot it. Oh, right. So I talked to my students at the War College about this. Um, in my view, the dangerous state in 1914 is not the power on the rise. It is the power that believes that its power is waning. That is Austria-Hungary. The country that is in the, that is the most destabilizing, at least I throw this out as a thesis, is Austria-Hungary. If you accept that it's not rising powers but declining powers that cause instability in the global system, that produces a much more dangerous scenario for our world than if you accept the ascendant power. So this idea that China is like Germany and the US is like Britain, I, I find absolutely ludicrous. And in fact, the right historical analogy might be much more uncomfortable. The second. I can't, oh, this is a very unusual microphone. It doesn't work. The second last question is from our own IWP professor, Wayne Schroeder. Mine's the last. discussion earlier about the German home front, and one of the best historians who's written on this, I actually studied that during when he was at the University of Oregon, he subsequently fought at Georgetown and Robin Chickory. Mm -hmm. Chickory works, mm -hmm. I would recommend to anyone to look yep. at the mm -hmm. home front. Absolutely. Um, 
just kind of closing this out, I mean, most of us kind of grew up with, you know, Barbara talked on the guns of August, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of literature that's coming out. Has come out the last few years, Margaret McMillan's book, The War That Ended Peace, The Soviet Walkers. What would you recommend uh, as maybe the, the one or two books on World War One that you just would, and someone should read to get a good capture of the entire experience? Well, no, they're, they're in the introduction that I already gave. Uh, Hugh, Hugh Strawn has a, a, a very big, it's 1,400 pages, but you can read bits and pieces of it, uh, yeah. a book just called uh, Two Arms, mm -hmm. which is only covers 1914 and 1915, and it's 1,400 pages. Mm -hmm. uh, but if there are specific um, items you want to look at, diplomacy, economics, whatever, you could do a lot uh, worse by just picking those parts of, of mm -hmm. his book. Uh, just for the record, I would absolutely tell you not to read Barbara Tuckman, who by her own admission did no research, was not particularly interested in history, she was interested in telling stories. Okay, we have uh, one final question and then we have food, is that right? Food, Baxter? Yeah. Uh, this has to do with uh, dysfunctional government, which is a problem that we may be uh, approaching or have already experienced. <laughs> Uh, just a little editorial. I'm, I'm a Republican. But, uh, I know for a fact that in 1931, the Japanese army took Manchuria on its own without any endorsement from Tokyo or the emperor or the government at home. And it was one of the biggest steps toward dissolution of an, any kind of accord between the United States. They did it by themselves. With regard to the Zimmerman telegram, it's my assumption, and I'm not positive about it, is that the foreign minister, Arthur Zimmerman, uh, addressed this telegram, wrote it, and he did it independently of the rest of the German government, and it was controversial, and it was, a, it was the actual last straw after un unrestricted submarine warfare. But it, my, my understanding is, and again, I'm not positive, is that this was not a fully endorsed policy by the full German government. It was an initiative by the foreign minister with all the authority or lack of authority that he had, and it was not only instrumental, but it was essential for the declaration of war. Did he act that way? But it's very intricate and kind of intricate. Did he act in that manner? It has to do with dysfunctional government. I mean, we can certainly say yeah. that you know by the middle of 1915, most of the Kaiser's advisors have just stopped consulting him because it's obvious that his grasp of what the problem is and his grasp of strategy is not sufficient. So um, I don't know. I would doubt the Kaiser signed off on it. I've never seen any evidence. I could be wrong. But I've never seen any evidence that he reacted with anger. I mean, Zimmerman didn't get fired. No, no. Which no. No, I would fire him. It's it's of a piece of what Germany's doing at this time, which is yeah. they expect that war is inevitable with the United States, and so they're looking for any partner they can to tie down the U.S. And uh, at this at this point, the German government has just decided. Yeah, the slide that I had of the Kaiser. War is inevitable with the U.S. We, we're planning on it, so therefore, who can we get? And, and again, part of the Zimmerman is also: can we somehow start opening up relations with Japan too? You know what you see in the Second World War of Japan tying down the U.S. in the Pacific, because one of the the themes of early 20th century history 
is that uh, in the aftermath of the Russo-Japanese War that the US and uh, Japan are on some inevitable course toward war as well. I mean, this is something that Lenin believed was going to happen, that you tried to exploit the rivalry between Japan and the US. Uh, again, Hitler, same way, saw Japan as, as one to tie down the US in the Pacific. So uh, the, the Zimmerman telegram is part of the whole overall German approach at this point of inevitable war with the US. In my absence of Dr. Owens, I will uh,